Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 30th, 2022. On the show today, we've got news and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of Walter Cronkite's narration of Spaceship Earth, as well as other celebrity appearances in Epcot. And don't forget that Walter Cronkite's narration began back in May of 1986. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that he has the world's worst thesaurus. Not only is it terrible... But it's terrible. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> As an English major, yes, I expect more of my thesaurus. When I'm thinking terrible, I want it to be dreadful, frightful, ghastly, gruesome, harrowing. To just get terrible. See, terrible is just terrible. It's really terrible. Good. It's just not go. good. Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Janie Janeo, Joshua Intrilligator, and Paul Lanham. And the long-time subscribers, Keldar, Unsupervised, and STL Mouse. Jim, back when Mickey Mouse was in a snow globe as part of the afternoon Share a Dream Come True parade, these were the cast members who had to carry emergency fire extinguishers and Gatorade. And although Mickey never burst into flames, it got close a couple of times, giving the team their nickname, the Smoldering Rodents. True story, Jim. True story. I saw those guys open for Huey Lewis in the news once. Say, wasn't that like the name that the, the Clash had like before Big Audio Dynamite? <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, uh, prices for individual lightning lanes for Guardians of the Galaxy are out. It's fourteen dollars mm-hmm. per rider starting today. Thanks to our friend Scott Gustin for that information. A couple of other tips around uh, riding Guardians of the Galaxy: If you can't get an individual Lightning Lane right at seven a.m., try at seven ten or seven twenty. And there's a technical reason for this, and that's that behind the scenes, Disney's using a shopping cart piece of software to hold reservations. And if you don't complete those purchases within ten minutes, say because Disney's website is crashed. Those reservations go back into inventory. So people who oh. tried at 7 a.m. and had a crash, those things will revert back at 7.10. Same thing at 7.20 for those people who crashed at 7.10. But 7.10, mm-hmm. 7.11, 7.12, somewhere in there is the time to keep going. Also, if you want to improve your odds of getting a boarding group, Google the phrase Joel, J-O-E-L, and the mm-hmm. letters B-G and the number one. So Joel, B-G, one, and then follow the directions. That's all we're going to say on this show. Okay. (laughs) On a recent episode of Marvel Us Disney, I Mm -hmm. shared some information I got from a friend Mm -hmm. and Imagineering that some of the footage that was shot for Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind Mm -hmm. was shot while Thor Love and Thunder was being shot in Australia. Just this morning, James Gunn, the director of the all three of the Guardians films, and Cosmic Rewind reached out to say, no, uh, that story's incorrect. I mean, who's really sweet about it? I mean, he could have come after me as being a complete jerk, but it's no, you're incorrect. And so I apologized, and he came back and said, Meh, it's all good, and just we all motor on. Yeah, James Gunn, look at you, not uh, not flamethrowing people on Twitter, James. Very nice. There we go. What a guy. What a guy. So, awesome. Very good. That's nice to hear, too. It is. Also, Jim, uh, Festival of the Lion King's full show returns July 16th. That's good. It's also important because the current version, celebration of the essence of what was once the Festival of the Lion King, I, I may have, that's the title, right, Jim? I, I think there's a few more parenthetical phrases. <laughs> now including monkeys <laughs> colon, and birds. Colon the ride. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Anyway, 
the current version of the show, which lacks uh, a number of elements, including some mm -hmm. of the acrobats, the dancers, and the songs, um, is mm -hmm. rated anywhere from half a point to a full point lower than the full mm -hmm. version, according to our reader surveys. So if the full show is rated around four and a half stars, which it is uh, traditionally mm -hmm. by all age groups, the current version is anywhere from three and a half to four stars for, mm -hmm. for some groups. Yeah, so that's important, right? It's definitely a lesser show and people think that. So it'll be good to see it uh, coming back Absolutely. full strength, middle of July. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Jim, we have time for a couple of listener questions. Here's one from Candice, who's mm -hmm. interested in buying DVC, but only if annual passes are available. So Candice said she called the Disney Vacation Club directly and asked them about annual passes. She says, the rep told me that they're not offering annual passes, but did say the word yet. And I think that slipped, Candace says. Uh, I said, so you're bringing them back at some point. And he said that he's not been communicated. That's not been communicated to them, despite what his assumptions are, which he wouldn't point blank tell. Candace, he said the buyers of DVC have to purchase tickets like everyone else. And also offered that since you're saving so much on deluxe accommodations, you can afford <sighs> to buy regular passes, not annual passes. I think, Jim, that's oh. a little bit of a stretch. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Candace called a couple of other resale places. And basically said, in California, annual pass holders are filing a class action lawsuit claiming that they were unable to use their passes due to the limited reservation availability and that Disney didn't want that scenario to become a problem mm -hmm. at Walt Disney World. I'm assuming, Jim, there presumably that's with DVC people. Like we can't use our DVC because we can't afford to go to the, or we can't get reservations in the park. Uh -huh. So, uh, So everybody expects the passes to come back, but nobody knows when. Okay. I will say this though. I mean, you, you, Jim, do you think DVC sales are taking a hit because people can't buy annual passes to go along with them? What makes me crazy is that DVC was targeted for the most passionate, the most dedicated Disney fans. These are the folks who will come back every year. These aren't the save for a lifetime people or come back every three or four year people. Yeah. And Disney is making it difficult for these folks to get back to the resort. I can't wrap my mind around that because these are the ones who evangelize to friends and family about, oh, you want to be a DVC member. You want to buy points. You want to get into this particular resort. And it's yeah. it's hard to imagine what they're telling their friends and family right now. I made a uh, I made a 40-year commitment and can't get into the parks. That seems, oh, seems like a no. difficult value proposition. So much of what Disney is doing lately just is so short-sighted it's just sort of like yeah it makes this quarter look good yeah. but let's jump ahead five years here ten years two things jim i don't think the current management thinks that far ahead and two i don't think the current management's going to be here in five or ten years <laughs> that's not their that's not their concern well, I'm hoping your crystal ball holds out, Len. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the uh, a lot of the things that they've done in the last couple of years are unsustainable over the long term, just based on the feedback that we're getting. So something mm -hmm. has to change and they just know it. So yeah, true. All true. All right. Uh, a letter from Christopher who says, mm -hmm. Len and Jim, the attraction downtime mm -hmm. statistics on last week's show were illuminating. I must say, though, that downtime is only part of the problem. When the attractions are running, many are running at far less than optimal show quality. It's not that there's a lot of downtime because they want to be sure every effect is working all the time. There's a lot of downtime and the attractions are still running with broken effects. Rise of the Resistance with the guns not moving or the final Kylo Ren animatronic behind a wall is like getting a poorly cooked steak at a restaurant or a movie going black for minutes in the middle. When we rode Dinosaur, not a single animatronic was moving, not one. And at the point where they take your photo, the big dinosaur on the right was gone and there was literally a dinosaur head on a stick on the left. 
These are just two examples, but there were many more. The downtime is quantifiable, but the broken effects are just as concerning. Jim's right. The bill has come due for Walt Disney World. My concern is that it'll be sent to collections. <laughs> I've, I've actually heard about the dinosaur thing. And I mean, so Christopher uh, mentioned it, but I've gotten a number of emails from people who are like, what is up with the show quality here, especially mm-hmm. in dinosaur, which to be honest, is not a, a top tier attraction at Animal Kingdom. But the idea that all of the animatronics are broken and nobody uh-huh. nobody's decided to fix them. Jim, it goes back to the fact that you can't close the ride to fix them because there's not enough capacity in Animal Kingdom to go along with it, right? Where's the incentive? I mean, Expedition Everest, the Yeti has been broken for a decade and a half at this point. Yeah. And, and the notion is, well, you're going by in a ride vehicle and there's lights and the scenery and that sort of thing. And okay, they're not moving, but you're moving. Why are you complaining? I feel like they didn't complain about the Eddie. They're not going to complain about the, the animatronics and dinosaur. Let it go. Yeah, there's a point. There's a point at which, though, the broken animatronics become a concern. I mean, if none Absolutely. of them are working on dinosaur, yeah, it's just, it's mm. betcha. And I would say this, you know, if it was, mm. if it's not important to have them working, why did they work in the first place? Excellent point. And why did they, why did they work, work for, I mean, I, don't know how, I can't remember how old dinosaur is, but let's say it's, you know, 15 years old. If it worked mm-hmm. for four, the last 14 and a half years and you put money into making it work, why stop now? True, true. Yeah. All right. Uh, next email from Jeremy. He says, mm-hmm. after you talked about it on a recent show, I watched Disney's The Black Hole and noticed mm-hmm. the sound effects used for the blasters in the movie sound similar to the sound effects in Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin. I discovered that Michael from ProgressCityUSA.com shared concept art from Imagineering that made for a possible black hole attraction that appeared to have the same blaster concepts and look similar to Buzz Lightyear. And Jim, I've actually added the concept art to our show notes We'll, uh, we'll include it on our show notes as well. Is it possible, Jeremy asks, that they used the sound effects from blasters from the black hole in Buzz Lightyear? What a deep cut reference, if true. No doubt. Disney is famous for, you know, I'm sure uh, Jimmy McDonald and his sound team at Disney, who were infamous, you know, and, and they build up the, one of the great sound effects libraries in Hollywood. You know, I'm sure when the Imagineers were looking for a sound to use in Buzz Lightyear, or Astro Blasters, or Space Ranger Spin, whichever version of the attraction we're talking about, mm-hmm. they're Disney fans just like us. So they would have gone into the library, probably found that, and dropped it into the Buzz shooter. Just because, again, it's like, oh, a tribute to Jimmy. This is cool. <laughs> More importantly, stuff we don't have to pay for because it's already mm-hmm. been paid for <laughs> even better that said though the concept art that jeremy was kind enough to send along yep. that michael had put up at progress city this isn't actually the black hole attraction this is the little green men shooter right oh, in fact okay. this version of the attraction was the one that was supposed to be built inside of the carousel of progress building i mean the notion that a, a ufo had landed at disneyland and it's like oh my god all of these little green men are, that are inside the spaceship are going to get out mm-hmm. you get inside there and kill them that's what I want to do with my family at a theme park. It's like, oh, let, you know, we come in peace. Boom. Boom. Well, you, exactly. well, now you're in pieces. Okay, there we go. <laughs> All right, folks, when we come back, Jim gives us the history of Walter Cronkite's narration of Spaceship Earth, as well as other celebrities in Epcot. And remember that Walter Cronkite's narration started this week back in 1986. And also what Epcot was attempting in this first makeover. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I got some very good advice a few years back from a good close family friend, which was to talk to my parents while I still could. And by that I mean not just one of those, how was your day, how have you been, polite but not very terribly death conversations, but to ask your parents real questions, learn what you can while you can, because there will come a time when these sorts of conversations just aren't possible anymore. I learned that the hard way when I lost my own dad 18 months ago. Still doesn't seem real. I miss him every day. More to the point, I feel bad that my daughter Alice won't ever get to know her grandfather as well as I did. My dad was a hell of a great storyteller. Which is why I'm so glad a few years back, when my father was still in good health, I signed him up for StoryWorth. StoryWorth is its online service that helps you and your dad, or the father figure in your life, connect through sharing stories and memories and preserving them for years yet to come. The way StoryWorth works is, every week, this online service emails your dad a thought-provoking question of your choice that comes from this vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions like, what was your fondest childhood memory, or have you ever feared for your life? My dad did this, dutifully answering each query that StoryWorth sent him, and after a year had passed, this online service then compiled all the questions my dad had answered and then took these stories, along with some photos my dad had shared, and turned that material into a beautiful keepsake book. I have to tell you, it has become quite the comfort over the past year or so. I, I find myself cracking that thing open every now and then and laughing as my father recounts a tale from his misspent youth back when he and his family lived in Dorchester, Mass, and he was a member of that infamous teenage bike gang, the Shamrocks. Look, I know, uh, Father's Day is coming up shortly, which is when we all typically spring for the cliched gifts like ties or coffee mugs that read, World's Greatest Dad. But if you really want to honor your father or the father figure in your life, give them the gift you'll both cherish for years yet to come. And that's StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Before we get started, I wanted to point out that there are many great videos of the Walter Cronkite version of Spaceship Earth on YouTube. I want to give a shout out to our friend Martin of Martin's Videos, who has both audio and video from the 1986 Spaceship Earth redo. Visit tinyurl.com slash SSE 1986, all one word, to see it. All right, Jim. So celebrities and Epcot Center is sort of the general umbrella thing we're talking about today. Speaking of which, are you familiar with the musical Chicago? 
I'm not, actually. Laurel is, I'm not. Well, Fred Ebb and John Kander wrote a great song for that show called Razzle Dazzle, which talks about how you can literally get away with murder, provided, of course, you put on a good show first. <laughs> and, and Razzle Dazzle okay. had some great lyrics. Give him an act with lots of flash in it, and the reaction will be passionate. Give him the old hocus-pocus, bead and feather of them. How can they see with sequins in their eyes? Now, but to start off today's show, I want to share one particular key couplet from the show tune, which is, throw them a fake and a finagle, they'll never know that you're a bagel. <laughs> I mean, the, the, how many words really rhyme with finagle, Jim? <laughs> this is why I love Condornet. But anyway, it's September of 1984. Michael Eisner has just been installed, new head of the Walt Disney Company. Right. And one of Michael's very first duties is to fix Epcot, which is about to celebrate its second anniversary of its grand opening. Okay. Now, mind you, no one in management at Walt Disney World much feels like celebrating, especially given that attendance levels at Epcot are definitely declining. And, and the problem is the word has gotten out among the theme park going public that Epcot Center, while beautifully designed and incredibly well-meaning, is a bagel. Not an everything bagel, not a poppy seed bagel, like, you know, just a plain, ordinary bagel. And now Michael Eisner needs to find a way to make this bagel seem not so plain. Michael Eisner came to Disney from Paramount, which was the hottest studio in Hollywood in the early 1980s. And when Michael Eisner had a genuinely terrible movie back during his days in, at, at Paramount, and take, for example, Staying Alive. Do you, do you remember this, Len? The, the sequel to um, Saturday Night Fever? Saturday Night Fever, Oof. yes. Right. Okay. Staying Alive was so terrible. It has the distinction of being the oldest film on Rotten Tomatoes to get a zero freshness rating. Oof, as in, really? <laughs> Literally, that means there are no good reviews anywhere for the Sylvester Stallone film. And by the way, that's right. Wait. I said Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone? John Travolta may have been the star of the movie, reprising his role as Tony Manero from Saturday Night Fever. But Sylvester Stallone not only directed this movie, Len, he also co-wrote and co-produced it. And again, look. I don't know, Len, if you're thinking modern, you know, movie musical, the first name that comes to, to, to mind, of course, is Sylvester Stallone. Okay, so here's here's my question, Jim. Yep. Mm -hmm. Frank Stallone, Sylvester Stallone's brother, was actually a singer who had... And he had the hit single from the Staying Alive soundtrack, Oh, really? Len? It was yes. him? It was him. I was like, okay. did, they, did they just get the wrong Stallone in the Rolodex? Like, what? <laughs> no. If anything, to give Sly credit, you know, as soon as he landed this gig, it's like, Frank, hey, you want to do something for the soundtrack? Okay, but but why did they pick Sylvester? I mean, I know we had Rocky back in 76, and he won all kinds of awards for that. And that's, you know, legitimately a great movie. And then he did, you know, Rocky II, which was also good. But well, you know, again, you, you got to look at this from from the Michael Eisner side of the fence. In fact, this is the genius part of saying alive because again, when he sees a rough cut of the movie and it's a disaster, but it's out ahead of the July 1983 release date. But Michael decides that in this situation, the best defense is a good offense. First of all, he books staying alive on six, over 1,600 screens nationwide. He then sends Stallone and Travolta out on this giant publicity tour where they appear on every morning news show and every late night talk show. It works. It, the very reason that, you know, he greenlit this production, it's like Stallone's name's on it, Travolta's name's on it. People are going to show up for this. It has the biggest opening weekend for a modern movie musical 
It sells $12 million worth of tickets. That mm-hmm. that record held for nine years, Len, only when Disney's animated Aladdin came out in 92. Okay, so $12 million in 1983 money is $35 million. So that's, that's, that would not be a great opening weekend now, but for a modern movie musical, which is a sub- genre. Okay. But he knew that if you use celebrity in the right way, it can turn around the public's perception of a project, at least initially. So now it's Epcot Center, which the public thinks of as earnest educational, but maybe not as entertaining as it could be. So the the quickest fix is to throw a few celebrities at this theme park. (laughs) We're going from Sylvester Stallone to Walter Cronkite, and this is Michael Eisner's idea of celebrity. This is. But again, where do you start? You start with the thesis attraction, the 180-foot-tall geodesic globe. The very first thing that guests encounter the Ender Park, also typically the first thing people come in the door and get on. But here's the thing. Who did Disney get to initially narrate the thesis attraction? Uh, The big show business name for this, this, you know, the the park. Vic Perrin. Now, there's going to be a short pause here for those of you who need to say who. Who? (laughs) Exactly. By the way, this is a variation on Jack Benny when he made his radio debut in 1932. He literally opened his first show with, this is Jack Benny talking. There will now be a short pause while you say, who cares? <laughs> so That is one of the greatest intros of I know, all I love time. It. I love it. I love it. <laughs> You know what's funny is because like when I'm when I'm doing you know presentations over Zoom and stuff like that, I know yep. I'm cognizant that I I talk fast, right? And mm-hmm. I I tend to pack presentations with a lot of information, right? So I'll periodically I'll say, you know, okay, and now I'm going to pause for questions. But now I think I'm gonna say, and now I will pause for you guys to say, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Jack what? Betty lives on. I, I, I love that. I love it. Okay. okay. Now, mind you, uh, Vic Perrin, look, if you're a fan of the original Star Trek series, maybe you caught Perrin's brief appearances on that legendary TV show. He played the two Tharns in Mirror Mirror, also the voice of Nomad and the Changeling. But seriously, if you know your 1960s sci-fi television, maybe you remember Perrin from The Outer Limits. This was ABC's response to the success of Twilight Zone, which aired over on CBS. At the start of that show, Outer Limits, Vic's voice was the one you heard. There's a, there is nothing wrong with your television set. We control the is, horizontal. Is that where that's from? There we go. Oh, my God. That's it, been copied so many times. It has. It has. And the theory is that Vic got this gig for – and remember, he didn't just narrate uh, Spaceship Earth, but he also narrated Universe of Energy. The theory is there was a senior member of Imagineering Management who really liked Star Trek or really liked Outer Limits. So he hired Perrin to be the voice of two future world attractions that sat side by side. And I've always wondered about people who went to the original virtual Epcot Center who, after they finished Space at Earth, went over to Universe of Energy and it's like, the Outer Limits guy? Again? (laughs) I love the idea that the Imagineers had enough leeway that they could hire their favorite voice actors. Again, it was a different timeline. Because if it was me, Spaceship Earth would now be narrated by the guy who does Dr. Doofenshmirtz. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Wouldn't that be? Uh, <laughs> and now, Jim, I need to hire some voice talent because I'm going to redo the entire thing. Oh, that is Dan Povenmire, and he's a, a wonderful – he actually once sent me a, a voicemail in Doofenshmirtz's voice, basically, but what's it going to take to get good coverage on Jim Hill Media? <laughs> who, do I, who do I have to talk to? I think you we know, can like, work something out. Yeah. <laughs> we need to kickstart the uh, – fund this or crowd uh, crowdfund this idea. All right, go ahead. Absolutely. All right, but uh, no disrespect to Vic Perrin, but but Mr. Perrin, at least as far as Michael Eisner was concerned, wasn't really a name. And Michael was looking to make Epcot Center suddenly seem sexy, exciting, you know, and and so he felt, look, the thesis direction of the park needs a name narrator, you know, someone that the guests would immediately recognize from the very first second the narration got underway. But But who could that be? Uh, we have to jump back to summer of 85. Walt Disney Productions decides they're going to revive the Sunday night anthology television series. They, they cut a deal with ABC. This is the show that, that Walt himself hosted uh, right up until his death in, in December of 66. And so the, the thinking was that if we're bringing this show back, we need an MC. We need a host. But at the same time, it's got to be somebody that's not Walt equivalent, but Walt adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they put together a dream casting list. And and first on the list is Dick Van Dyke, because it's like, oh, well, you know, come on. Dick's associated with Mary Poppins and beloved sitcom. And, you know, he'd be perfect. Likewise, Danny Kaye, though Danny at this point was kind of on Disney's mayored list because of what he did during the opening television special for Epcot Center. He was kind of a jerk. Okay. If you've ever seen the TV special, there's a moment where Danny is directing the West Point Choir. I mean, you have the, all of these young men in their gray uniform and they're, they're singing a patriotic song and Danny's on like this, this lift high above, you know, the group directing them. Mm-hmm. And it was a camera shot that took hours to set up and it's, it's ending the show. And Danny deliberately at the, the height of the song drops his pants on camera. And Dick Nudis got so mad at him. It was like he sent a golf cart and it's like, Get that guy off my resort. Yeah. <laughs> the golf cart just ended up driving on I-4 for a while. <laughs> Here we go. On the other hand, Eisner also insisted that Peter Graves from Mission Impossible. Surely be you're joking. Well, no, that's actually why he wanted him. Airplane <laughs> was made at Paramount. And Peter Graves had been so sweet and so funny and so personal. Michael Eisner's like, no, he's a great guy. We should definitely yeah. get him. I mean, his voice is, his voice is very resonant. It's a uh, uh, immediate yeah, authority yeah. figure. But, um, <laughs> because, but I, I, would, I would love for Peter Graves to say, as you're going into uh, the, the papyrus scene, have any of you ever been in an Egyptian prison? Well, I know it's I know it's I know it's Turkey, but still, <laughs> Turkish person. <laughs> uh, do you like gladiator movies? Exactly. All right, all right, all right. Anyway, um, but again, this is all. Eisner wants a Sunday Disney Sunday night movie on ABC to be perceived as important. But so you need a really big name to be the host of this revival. Sure. Someone like say the most trusted man in America, and. When you said that in the mid-1980s, there was only one person who came to mind, and that was legendary newsman Walter Cronkite, who had stepped down in March of 1981 as the anchor of the CBS Evening News right. after a 19-year run, replaced by Dan Rather, who actually had a longer run uh, yep. at that show, yep. 24 years. 
But now, okay, it's four years after Walter's effectively retired, and he's kind of kept his hand in. He's he's done a series of documentaries uh, about World War II, which, given that, I mean, Walter was actually on the ground in the North American and European theater while the war was going on. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, this is a guy who could speak with authority about, you know, what went on during the war years. But the question is, and that begins airing in 83, but but now the question is, well, how do we get a hold of this nearly 70-year-old guy? You know, ask him to come in an audition for the Sunday Night Movie. And and this is when Roy E. Disney steps up and says, leave it to me. Again, because Roy E. was an enthusiastic sailor. He knew the Cronkite shared this passion. So Roy E. arranges a trip out to Martha's Vineyard, which is where Walter and his wife have retired to. And then through friends, oh, I bumped into Walter Cronkite and floats the offer to him. And Cronkite is genuinely flattered. He has huge respect for the Disney organization, but as he tells Roy, it's, look, I'm retired now. I don't want the hassle of coming into work on a weekly show. And and besides, Walt Disney is kind of a tough act to follow. So he politely but firmly turns down the hosting gig. And and then almost by default, Michael Eisner becomes the MC host of the Disney Sunday Night Movie, which by Michael's own admission, he was initially terrible at. In fact, Eisner's wife, Jane, you know, her notes were like, you're terrible in camera. You're You're awkward. You're (laughs) stiff. But Michael keeps at it. He hires Michael Kay, who is this political consultant who specialized in taking politicians who were terrible on camera and making them look natural and folksy. And over time, he he, he got Michael better at that gig. But back to Walter Cronkite now, the, the company's opened a line of communications with the most trusted man in America. And the questions now is... How do we take advantage of this? I mean, it's clear from what Walter told Roy E. He's not willing to take on a full-time gig at this time, but what about a project that take up a day or so of Walter Cronkite's schedule? And so, yeah. so this is when Michael Eisner is looking to bedazzle Epcot Center, you know, insert a few celebrities here and there. And remember, this is 85, 86. Company's already announced its deal with Michael Jackson and George Lucas. Ah, uh, right. Okay. So this is part of an overall campaign. Okay. Yeah, and again, in just a few months uh, will result in the opening of Captain EO, a 3D movie. But Captain EO is woefully behind schedule. They began shooting it in July of 85. It was supposed to open in the parks for the summer of 86. But they're so far behind on the effects work that it's like, look, we're not going to make Memorial Day. We may make Labor Day. Oh, jeez. But it's just one of these things where you, if you want something else, if you want somebody to promote for the summer of, of 86, good luck. It's not us. And so at this point, it's like, well, wait a minute. What if we bring in Walter Cronkite to re-record Vic Perrin's narration for Spaceship Earth? It gives Eisner what he's looking for. You know, he wants his celebrities and it gives Epcot a little more star power. It gives us something we can talk up for the summer of 86. Yep. And then we get EO for the fall. And so it's like, okay. They contact Cronkite. He quickly agrees to the gig. Another reason why you have to seek out Martin's excellent documentary for Spaceship Earth is the fact that if you listen to the Vic Perrin narration, yep. this is the set of shows that we did for Bandcamp about Joseph Mankiewicz. And the rape bribery script we went through, which was really poetic. That's it exactly. In fact, this is how the Ray Bradbury version, and in fact, if you rode Spaceship Earth from 82 to eh, late winter, early spring of 86, this is how it opened. It's, where have we come from? Where are we going? 
In the dust from which we were formed, answers recorded on the walls of time. So let us now journey into that past to seek those walls and to know ourselves and to probe the destiny of our spaceship Earth. And now, suns reverse, moons rephrase. Let us return to ancient caves where first we learned how to share our thoughts and to survive. Now, here is how the Walter Cronkite version of the opening Spaceship Earth, which starts, Len, with an actual introduction. You step into your ride vehicle, you sit down, and this is a female voice saying, AT&T welcomes you to Spaceship Earth and invites you to explore the story of communications. Mm -hmm. And now, your host, Walter Cronkite. And then, in the distinct voice that we, you know, all of us baby boomers knew, for eons, our planet has drifted as a spaceship through the universe. And for a brief moment, we have been its passengers. Yet in that time, we've made tremendous progress in our ability to record and share knowledge. So now let's journey back 40,000 years to the dawn of recorded history. So far less poetry, more put the hay down where the goats can get at it style narration. And Walter records his narration April of 1986. Uh, imagine you spend the next few weeks editing the recording and doing the final mix. And once that's done, this future world attraction briefly closes to allow installation of this new material. And, and when I say briefly, Len, I, we're talking three days. Yeah. May 26th through May 28th, 1986. On the 29th, the very first guests climb across their ride vehicles at the base of Space Birth. And here, Walter Cronkite is a new narrator of the future world attraction. And in those three, time, three days, they were able to do a couple of additional tweaks to the ride. There was, a, it used to be when you went up the first load hill in the leg of, of Spaceship Earth, mm -hmm. before you got to the caveman scene, they had a fog machine. So the idea is you you were pa literally passing through the mists of the time. The mists of time, and, exactly. There yeah. we go. I mean, was, that, was that just too on the nose or was there a problem with the, uh, the smoke machine? There, there were certain folks who went to guest relations and said, I have emphysema and oh, you know, okay. I did, maybe that wasn't a good choice. So what they did is they pulled out the fog machine and replaced it with twinkle lights, which were supposed to represent the stars, you know, it's, oh, as we're, we're passing back, backward through time. At the very, very top of the ride track, just before the network operation scene, they added two still tableaus. Just in four years' time, things had changed in the computing world. So off to the left side of the track, they shoehorned in a scene where a woman is sitting working in a paperless office. Mm. Remember the idea of the paperless office? I lens? vaguely remember it back when I when I first started going to work in the late 80s, that the idea was they, like, oh, you know, we're going to be paperless soon. And soon is, I guess, coming up eventually. 2023. Exactly. Okay. And on the right side of the track, they had a scene with a boy in his bedroom looking at a personal computer. Now, where, what scenes are there now? Like, where was this? I will have to go take a look. I mean, I know it's in, I know it's in Martin's video because I remember seeing it, but I, I couldn't remember if they were eventually replaced by other scenes or if they're no, just no longer there. The thing, talking with Imaginers who've, who've worked on Spaceship Earth, it's the modern day scenes that they consider the most frustrating because mm -hmm. it's like literally the moment you put the tech in, in three months, yeah. it's out of date. Something's better, yeah. Yeah, and it just, and the notion of people will be going by this same show scene for 10, 15 years and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. can we get a monitor in there that isn't the size of a washing machine? <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> a cathode ray tube, a CRT monitor. There yeah. we go. There we go. And, and anyway, a, a, a final ad 
you used to descend the attraction in the dark with mm-hmm. Tomorrow's Child playing. And and the notion was to do this in the dark, facing backwards, seemed a little grim. So what they did is they, they went out and got all of these photographs of uh, happy children. I remember this part, yeah. They printed it on plexiglass and lit from behind. So at mm-hmm. least as you're going down, oh, Tomorrow's Child, and there they are, and they're so happy, you know, and you're leaving the ride. But this is all they could do in, in three days. For three days, that's not bad. No, no, no. And certainly when you, you think about the next redo for Spaceship Earth, the Jeremy Irons retake, at that time they were closed from August 15th through November 23rd, 1994. So three months. So bigger, much bigger change. But Cronkite really enjoyed working on Spaceship Earth, so much so that when the Imagers reached out just two years later and asked Walter if he'd be willing to be paired with Rob Williams to serve as the co-host of The Magic of Disney Animation, which was, again, being built for the then still under construction Disney Jam Studio Tour, Cronkite immediately says yes. Walter really didn't get Robin Williams' off-the-wall sense of humor. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure it was coming at Walter very, very fast. (laughs) It it was. It was. In fact, there's this great behind-the-scenes kind of blooper reel of sorts that's out there for the magic of Disney animation. And it shows a lot of alternate jokes that Robin tried out for this attraction, which are immediately followed by Walter Crichton looking at him like, you're an idiot. You know, it's just sort of like, why would you say that? Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. But anyway, uh, back to summer of 86, guest surveys taken between June and July of that year show that guests thought having Walter Cronkite as the narrator of Space River was a huge positive. Uh, approval ratings for this feature will attraction reportedly went up by 15% just based on Cronkite's name recognition. Wow, that's good. Yeah. And, but let's be honest here, maybe a less flowery version of narration helped. Oh, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Make the make yeah. the language simpler for people to understand. Yeah, okay. There we go. All right. Captain EO opened September of that same year. And again, also, wow, it was Epcot Center visitors. And at that point, Michael Eisner's like, yep, this is how we fix this. We're going to bedazzle Future World with celebrities. So, by the way, uh, just before we started the show today, Len, I sent you an image of the cover of Disney News Magazine from the fall of 89 that was oh, done. Cranium for- Command. There we go. But look closely at Cranium Command because this image that they were using to promote the show is different from the the finished attraction uh, in that all of the characters that we see inside of the little boy's brain are animated. Right. The finished version of the attraction, first of all, uh, how many members of the cast of Saturday Night Live? I mean, Dana Carvey, John Lovitz. Yeah, basically, let's just go to New York. We'll go to uh, Rockefeller Center. We'll find uh, everybody we know. Yeah, what they decided to do is, instead of the animated vignettes, they got Charles Grodin to be the right side of the brain. They got John Lovitz to be left side. My personal favorite, Bobcat Goldthwait, is the nervous system. Still alive. Still alive. Still with us. This is the pavilion where they leaned way too heavily into celebrities. I mean, think about it. Martin Short stars in the Making of Me film. Uh, you have Tim Matheson from Animal House and Elizabeth Shue from Space Camp, uh, star in Body Wars, which, by the way, the ride film was directed by Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. And Len, at that point, Epcot embraces celebrities and never looks back. Wow. And that's all thanks to Walter Cronkite and, and Roy E. Disney just coincidentally bumping into the women on the dock at Martha's Vineyard. That is fantastic. So um, uh, you mentioned George Went, and mm-hmm. this was 80, 
six when they were when were they when were they when did they cast well, George Quint? I, I want to say the Wonders of Life Pavilion opens October of '89, which right. is five. So six Cheers months. had been on the on the air for a while at that. Oh point. yeah, yeah. He was a great stomach. <laughs> was I'm sending this stuff back up. You know, it's like it was very very enjoyable. Though at that point, previous year in 1988 was when Mickey was celebrating his 60th birthday and right. there was an hour long special that airs uh, aired on NBC that actually features Mickey uh, and the, the problem is uh, the conceit of the special is that Mickey is missing but nobody recognizes that it's this 3 foot tall rodent when he keeps walking into NBC sitcoms and at one point you are actually on the set of Cheers this is a 5 minute long bit Len, where you know Mickey walks into Cheers and he's sitting down next to Cliff and Norm and you know it's like oh you know I, what became of Mickey Mouse yeah what became of him Mickey Mouse in a bar that's interesting Mickey Mouse in a Park, yeah. So he had been on Disney's radar up until that point. And so okay. it's like, ooh, okay, yeah. If we can get George, he'd make a great stomach. Let's do it. Oh, that'd be a great stomach. There we go. <laughs> you know, when I look at you, I think of the digestive system. <laughs> <laughs> How do you open that conversation? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Nancy was just saying the other day that she, I, I reminded her of the, the opposite end of the digestive system. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to go there, Jim. Left it for you. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So. All right. That's a great That's a great show. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be sharing samples of great-great-granduncle Abraham's Fireside Cobbler whose secret ingredient is love and moonshine at the 72nd annual Louisiana Peach Festival on Saturday, June 4th, starting at 9 a.m. on Park Avenue in beautiful downtown Ruston, Louisiana. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.